0: Hello, 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 and welcome to Dismantle Racism, where our goal is to uncover, dismantle, and eradicate racism, and we really do want to create a world where racial equity is the norm. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC, and today we are going to be looking at history, really telling our story and what it means to tell our stories within our various communities. But as always, I want us to get started by centering ourselves, grounding ourselves and preparing ourselves for this dynamic conversation. So just take a moment to find your breath and to just simply tune into that which gives each of us life. Take a moment to connect with divine wisdom and your sacred intelligence, which is that divine part of you that helps you to make intelligent choices. Breathe in the knowledge that these choices manifest your greatness while helping others to manifest their greatness. As you breathe in and out, remind yourself that you are loved and that you are love itself. Breathe in and out. Breathe in and out the knowledge that you are a part of a shared humanity and carry within you the power to heal and to be a part of changing the status quo. Breathe in and out. Acknowledging the power of one contributes to the power of community. Now take a deep breath in and sigh it out and let's get started. The concept of learning from our past mistakes is a concept that we're taught from early on, even from childhood. That's the way we learn about algebra. That's the way we learn how to cook. That's the way we have success with the basic skills. Those are the ways in which we develop and become well-adjusted individuals. Our history is important. That's why our family history is important. When we go to the doctors, they ask us about our medical history, and we want to share as much of that as we can because it helps us really with our own medical treatment. So why is it so difficult? For white Americans in particular to look back on past misdeeds of their communities and move forward with the knowledge that the more informed our communities are, the more informed white communities are, the more positive we can go forth. It seems that whenever we want to talk about history, particularly in this country, white people will say we're just judging up the past and they say that we're teaching kids to be racist. Well, I disagree, and I believe my guest today disagrees with that concept as well. So I am so delighted today to be talking to the Reverend Dr. Stephen Yunkite. We are going to be discussing unsilencing the past, discovering these forgotten truths, if they are forgotten. I think sometimes we just want to bury things and not deal with them, but we're going to talk about Some of these things that we've ignored, overlooked, or suppressed. We're going to talk about what is the fear for white people to talk about a racist past. History is there. It's presented in our images of enslavement, our images of the civil rights movement. That history is there. It didn't come from, ah, just out of thin air. It came from somewhere. And we have evidence when we, when we look at those images and we see the white faces of people who, who said, you can't go to our schools or the white people standing around for lynchings. It's there. We cannot pretend that it doesn't exist. So today, I am delighted that our guest is going to talk about the uncovering of these stories and maybe some of the difficulties of uncovering them. So Reverend Stephen Gung- Junkite is the senior minister of the First Congregational Church in o He did his doctoral work at Yale. He taught social ethics at Harvard Divinity School. And he is the author of Spaces of Modern Theology. He's married and he has three young children or, or I don't actually know exactly how young, but Youngish. You know, they're youngish. We'll put it like that. Um, and if there were time enough in the day, he would write a book on the history of New Orleans gospel music. And then if there were still more hours, he would trace the spiritual connections between gospel and New Orleans and Santeria and Palo and Havana and Voodoo and Port Authority Prince. So he's a very interesting uh, passion there we can bring you back to discuss that at another time but i would like to welcome to the show today reverend dr steve junkite and i'm just going to call you reverend doctor if that's okay with you so welcome to the show today
1: well thank you it's great to be here with you and uh, i'm i'm deeply honored to be a guest on your show so thank you for having me
0: so i so appreciate the work that you are doing because again my goal in life is is to help eradicate and dismantle racism and a part of bringing the folks on this show is to talk to people who are doing some of the work and also talking about the difficulties of uncovering but what i always like to start out with is getting a sense of what grounds you to do this work or any other work of of social justice because it's not always easy and I don't want to say it's self-explanatory by you being the Reverend Doctor because you might have something else that, that grounds you. So talk to me about your practices.
1: Yeah, the practices. Um, I, I guess it would point to several different practices um, that that wind up grounding me. Um, I am a minister, and so and so um, being a part of a faith community is a is a deep part of who I am. It's a deep part of um, who I've always been. Uh, you know, growing up. So it it's in my bones it's in my blood um and i i have um learned deeply from um from the scriptures from the prophets um from the gospels um but also from uh faithful people who have interpreted those things um Abraham Heschel, Martin Luther King, theologians who have um, taken the, the ancient writings and applied them to our contemporary situation. Uh,
2: um,
1: so that stuff grounds me on one hand, but in terms of um, kind of personal practice on the other, I go running long, long distances and think about the world um, <laughs> when I do. I think I sometimes pray. I sometimes listen to, um, listen to books or music. But um, yeah, those two things ground me.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have to tell you, people are shaking in their boots when you say, I think I pray, <laughs> you know. But <laughs> um, but because I really believe that there's more than one way for us to connect with our sacred source and right. and that life itself is a prayer and yes. a connection. So, but that's a whole nother story. Amen to
1: that, yes. We,
0: we could talk about theology on a, another time. But, right. But I think that our religion though, that we practice, that we say, that we practice our spiritual beliefs, that we say that we practice and believe in are so interwoven into issues of social justice. That's right. Even though there are people who choose to leave that out of their ministries. And so I, again, I'm grateful that you're not one of those people who's chosen to do that. So, so talk to me a little bit, Reverend doctor, about your, Your experiences like how did you become aware of racial inequities and was there a particular uh, moment where you said, I have to be on the
1: right side of Mm. social
0: justice.
1: Mm. I mean, I can point to I can point to one particular moment and I can tell you about that, but I think those those moments are continual for 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 me, for um, somebody that that was raised in a very white community that um, still lives in a very white community i feel like i have to undergo a revolution and a conversion all the time um, because it's so easy to slip back into previous narratives it's so easy uh, to slip into a kind of complacency um, so when i think about the work of you know to use this religious word conversion out of uh, a particular frame of being or a particular way of being i think it's ongoing it doesn't just happen once However, I will say that one major formative influence for me uh, was an experience I had as a high school senior. I was given the opportunity um, to travel to Ghana, to West Africa. Um, And that was a moment in which I was able to stand in one of those castles where they took kidnapped Africans and shipped them across the Atlantic Ocean, probably to the West Indies first, uh, but then later to be dispersed all up and down the Western Hemisphere. Um, But standing there um, and having this kind of forceful realization that um, my people did this.
2: Mm.
1: my people that did this and by my people I mean not just uh, white people of European ancestry but white people of European ancestry who were Christians or who identified as I, I think
0: Christians. we need to breathe that in yes because because even just as much as I know it that just gave me chills when you said that yes the people who say that they believe in God are the people who did that.
1: Right. that's right that's right um so, yeah, that's a, that's a realization that, um, I feel like I have been coming to terms with ever since I was 17 years old when I stood there. Um, mm-hmm. so, um, it, 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 it's not a one and done sort of thing. I feel like I'm, uh, continually in process. Um, the other thing that happened at that moment, um, during that, um, visit to Ghana was the experience of, um, um having been welcomed i I mean this still this still boggles my mind having been welcomed into those communities in west africa Mm. um as a descendant of the 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 white folks who who did the enslaving Mm. um so and then seeing the vibrant um spiritual and aesthetic and musical cultures um Mm. That were that were in play. Uh, this is in 1991, but but having witnessed that and going, this is so rich. This is so powerful, and um, yeah. So those two things. I, I mean, on one hand, seeing this uh, uh, castle, and then on the other hand, seeing this incredible vibrance and beauty.
0: Mm-hmm. You have just said so much in 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 there, uh, and we're going to have to take a break in a few minutes. But 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 one of the things that that you said that I think is really important is your experience as a white person mm. going to those castles.
2: Mm.
0: And it and it begs to whether all white people should have an experience of going to those castles
2: mm. and
0: seeing that. But it doesn't mean that they'll have the same experience that you did. But, but perhaps if more went and said, wait a minute, this is what My people did. Then they can say, "Well, stop saying that we're the ones that's bringing that up." I I I think it would be valuable. That's one thing I want to say. And I guess the second thing is, is I'm thinking about the differences between the experience. Now, that is one place that I would like to go Mm. to to Ghana to basically to the point of no return. Right, those castles are referred to that. I bet you my experience would be completely different.
1: Right, right, right,
0: right. And 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 to know that even before my people got to those castles, that they had to walk miles and miles and miles shackled, right? And then once inside the castles, there's no room. There's right. no room to, to to even breathe in those castles. So the reality of that, you know, even just talking with you, it just mm. just to talk about it, you mm. know. It's, it's almost a choking sensation. Yes. And so there's so much to be said from this incredible experience that yes. you've had. Um, we do have to take a break, but uh, when we come back, before we before we go further to the current day of, of just retelling the stories of our communities, I want to continue our conversation around the castles, but we have to take a break. This is Dismantle Racism. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. We'll be right back. We're back with Dismantle Racism. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. And my guest today is the Reverend Dr. Stephen Junkite. And before the break, we were talking about your visit to Ghana as a young person, which in and of itself, at 17, for you to travel to Ghana is is really, I think, about the privilege that's even encased in, in, in that, that you could take a trip, because there are many folks Uh, who cannot do that, particularly people of color. But I'm struck by a couple of things in that conversation alone. And one is your sense of taking some responsibility, even though you didn't do it personally, there seemed to be some personal responsibility that you took. And one of the things that I often hear white folks say, well, why are you upset with me that I didn't do it? I didn't own slaves. You know, that's what that's what people have said to me often. So talk to me a little bit about that sense of, of saying, wait, my people did this. Not only white people, but white Christian folks. Talk to me about that.
1: Yeah, I um I mean to, to your point about responsibility, I um I do like to differentiate between guilt and responsibility. Um, because on one hand it's true. Um I I didn't do that personally. Uh, and you know, whatever, whoever you're talking to, I mean, they, they didn't engage in these acts. Um, and so they're not guilty in a personal way of, of any of this stuff. So I want to, I want to, uh, uh, um, set them free in some ways, uh, um, from, from that sense of guilt. However, responsibility is a whole other matter, uh, mm-hmm. and taking responsibility for this history and bringing it into the present and uh acknowledging that the past has informed who we are, mm. what we are, the conditions in which we live, such that we um need to be responsible before one another uh, in changing the present that that to me uh resonates powerfully mm. um so So I felt as though in that moment uh it was impossible for me. Not to acknowledge the ways in which I'm responsible before this information. I'm responsible before this experience. Um, I cannot just consume it. I can't just have it and then move on. I'm responsible um, for it. 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 I don't know. I get it was given to me as a gift, uh, in essence. Um, um, it was a privilege. But insofar as it was a privilege, I'm responsible.
2: Um, right.
1: So anyway, I, I I think that's a way I hope to invite other um, white folks, people with conscience, people who are struggling with these things to say, no, 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 you didn't do this stuff. It's not about it's not about holding you to account for something you didn't do. That's that's not what's at stake. What is at stake is taking responsibility for the present uh, mm. and working with others to create a more inhabitable and just um, future and present for everybody.
0: Everybody. Mm. Mm. I love that because. Because what I also love that you said is people who are conscious
1: mm-hmm. because
0: so many people are unconscious I know. and that's why they don't want to talk about the past at all and will say to black people uh, in particular why are you so angry mm-hmm. why 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 are you angry because we talk about things from the past they assume that we're angry the the first thing i would say is Maybe I have reason to be angry. And so can we just acknowledge and that maybe you should be angry too. Maybe you should be angry about what's happening because when we are angry, anger is what drives us. Sometimes there's something called righteous anger and we can move to this place. Particularly folks who claim to be Christian, because for those people who claim to be Christian, when Jesus walked through the temple, Jesus was angry about what was happening and so there comes a time when we have to say let's get you know indignant <laughs> about what is going on and right. so if we can if we can just come out of our boxes a little bit and not try to evaluate someone else for their emotions in the situation mm-hmm. and say is there a reason that people of color should be angry right. so standing in those castles You know, I can imagine the grief that would come up for me because anytime someone tells me of their experiences and I've talked to plenty of people who've who've told me about it, the grief comes up and the anger and the sadness and all of that. And it would just be wise. I think it would be a good thing if more white people could go and have that experience and to understand what you just said too about we have a responsibility. You know, Maya Angelou says, when we know better, we do better, right? Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. If we know better, we can't just stop at, oh, everybody's talking about race, let's talk about it, and then it dies off. So, talk to me about you and how this sense of responsibility unfolds in the telling of the stories in your community.
1: Yeah, again, that's a great question. Um, um... Well, here's here's to lead into that. I think one of the things that's worth noting is that, um, you know, you can go to these castles in West Africa and you can have those experiences. And then you can come back to the United States and not see any acknowledgement whatsoever that anything ever happened, Mm -hmm. that anything happened. Um, And so it... it, um, I think it behooves us, um, especially those of us in white communities to start doing some digging and to start telling stories that our communities haven't, uh, um, understood or full, fully acknowledged. Um, now I will say, I will say this, um, I have gestured to some of those stories. I've been, I've been an old line for eight years now. I've gestured to some of those stories. I've talked about them, um, to the best of my understanding. Um, but it wasn't until, um, the immediate aftermath of the incidents with uh, George Floyd and and the, the massive uprising that took place as a response to that, that, that I and some others in our community really did some digging into what are what are the stories here? What are the stories here? And. Um, Yeah, the stories that we discovered were um, unbelievably painful and unbelievably troubling. Um, But it is necessary to get at those stories in order to figure out who we are as a community. Uh, And I take it that every single community, I mean, yeah, every community, um, um, especially predominantly white communities, communities, need to be doing this very same work for themselves in order to figure out who are we and what made this place the way it is. Um, mm-hmm. The town in which I live is 98% white. Mm-hmm. That doesn't happen by accident.
0: Right. Well, and particularly where you live, we're we're here in New England. Yes. You know, we're, we're where the 13 colonies started. Yep. There were people who inhabited this land that's before right. Europeans came. That's right. So there's nothing that's happening in New England that doesn't reek of racism and oppression.
1: That's right. Because... That's
0: right. It was the country was founded on that's that. True. And we yeah. could we could have all these wonderful ideals about America that we want. But that's because we also have the blinders on. Right. right. And people refuse to, to people. And by people, I mean, white people mm-hmm. refuse mm-hmm. to, like, take those blinders off. So what do you think it is for white people
1: that stands in the way of looking in that mirror? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's something that I wrestle with myself, like figuring out like what, yeah, what is that thing? What is that resistance? Um, and I, I think it's the, I think it's the sense of being, um, or feeling morally indicted somehow, the sense that in order to, um, it's, yeah, that, that, that my own or their own righteousness is somehow being called into question. Mm -hmm. Um, and it might be being called into question. I, I don't know, um, but what it means to me to tell these stories that um, that we've been telling in our town is that we can no longer just circulate through these spaces in, uh, you know, um, unconsciously. Um, we need to circulate through these spaces, seeing them in a totally different light. So, for example, I live on the um, banks of the Connecticut River, almost. Um, I can walk to it within, um, you know, 15 minutes So, so or 10 minutes. Um, um, for a lot of people, that's simply a recreation area. It's a place to go fishing. It's a place to go boating. It's a pretty place. You know, it's a nice place to go for a walk. But when you start unpacking this history, you start to be able to understand that actually, no, those were channels in which enslaved people were taken up to Middletown, in which they um, were um, unloaded sometimes in Old Lime, in which um, ships from New London were continuing all the way. So just this notion that the spaces that we take for granted as beautiful, as Mm -hmm. lovely, as Mm -hmm. pretty, as um, recreational it's it's being able to flip the lens and go but there's something more here and we need to see that we need to feel it we need to understand it anyway i think there's a deep resistance to doing that because it it it's troubling it it uh it, it it affects um how easily um we can inhabit those spaces and just go there to have fun so i know that is troubling but for me to live in america is troubling amen Yes, now yes.
0: that doesn't mean that I want to go and live somewhere else or I'm anti-American but but you know listen I have to daily almost think about my environment and what's good for me to do or not do. Sure, you know sure. recently we um you know we had voting yeah. and uh I had to decide cuz I needed someone to take me to to vote and I had to quickly just very quickly scan do I want my white friend to take me to the voting uh, location Mm -hmm. just because I I had some, you know, some mobility issues that I was thinking about? Or at the time, I had a young Black man who was in the home with me and my daughter who had come to visit. And And I thought, do I want him to take me in my car? And what will... What will they say? Will they give us a hard time because I'm asking for some sort of assistance, which is my right. Yeah, But I had to, I mean, it was a quick thought, like, who do do I get to take me? And some folks may wonder, why is she all worried about that? Because I know how people are in this country. And I know the things that I have to fight every day. And so as a Black person, we're always having to, Scan our environment and no, it doesn't always feel good. We've gotten so used to it. So I don't think white people get to opt out just because it's uncomfortable. I think white people do opt out, but okay. I don't think if you claim to be a person who is a, of a higher level of consciousness,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and particularly in this Christian faith that you and I share, yeah.
2: Yeah.
0: it's not okay for you to go to church on Sunday and just listen to things that are comfortable.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
0: time to, to shake it up a little bit. But, you know, Steve, that. We, we, we have to take a break. Yep. We are going to come back and, and we'll continue with the stories of what's happening in your community. But I do want to just really quickly talk about even the ways in which we tell our stories in this country. Mm-hmm. Um, it impacts our ability to understand how pervasive racism is because then we don't understand how the system is built for some people and not for others. But we have to take a break right. and uh, we'll be right back. This is Dismantle Racism. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC. Howdy. I am Joseph
2: Franklin McElroy, host of the new podcast, Gateway to the Smokies. It airs on talkradio.nyc every Tuesday night from 6 p.m. to 7
0: We're back with Dismantle Racism. I'm your host, the Reverend Dr. TLC, and I have been talking with the good Reverend Dr. Jun Kite, and we've been talking about the uncovering of the stories that are in our communities, but beyond just the stories that are that are in this country and in the world that we need to talk about, but what are the critical stories in our communities? And before the break, as you were talking about our responsibility and just talking about the area in which you've grown uh, or that you live in, that's a beautiful area and understanding that what are the what's the history here, the uncovering that needs to happen in this beautiful place that we appreciate what what's the story. And it doesn't mean that because we know the story, we still can't enjoy those things. But, it's a, but it is important for us to honor that we are standing on the backs of other people. In fact, we may be a part of the people who've crushed, you know, other people. And so two things uh, come up for me. One is, you know, in the Presbyterian denomination, we now are committed to honoring the land whenever we have a meeting. And so we talk about First Nation people and the land that we're on and honoring what happened to Mm -hmm. um, folks. And so I think when we talk about responsibility, that's one of the ways we can be responsible because now we're telling the stories. And once we tell the stories, then what do we do about that? The second thing I was thinking about is language. Language is so important because... We now use the term enslaved Mm -hmm. people as opposed to slaves. So Mm -hmm. it makes a big difference. And so Mm -hmm. I'll give an example. So, as pastors, we talk about Solomon and Mm -hmm. how great Solomon was. But sometimes in the description of Solomon, we say, Solomon had so many slaves and so many concubines and so many this and that. But what a difference it would make if we were to say, And Solomon enslaved so many people. Right, right. We get a different impression of him, do we not? And so until we start to change our language in the ways in which we tell those stories, we can still tell a story that's sanitized, which Mm. is what we've done all of our lives. So Mm -hmm. I I just wanted to just point that out and talk about the importance of doing that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I I hear that. I think it makes um, not only in terms of the Bible, but in terms of, you know, let us say the first minister of the first congregational church of old Lyme saying not that he owned slaves, but that he enslaved right. human beings. Yes. The second minister, not that he owned slaves, but that he enslaved human beings. Yes. Um, that makes it. Yeah. That makes all the difference in the world. I
0: mean, even you just saying that. Yeah. You know, just yeah. sends a chill there. Yeah. And it would make us think about the humanity That's of right. people, right? The, or lack thereof That's right. that, that you have. And yeah. so we have to be able to tell, we have to be able to speak truth to power mm. for one thing, because also in some of our churches, there's a lot of power there financially with people who don't want to hear it, right? But we, those of us, particularly who are called to this work, we have to be able to speak the truth. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to to be able to tell it. So tell me, in your community, what has been the response uh, to your advocating the the
1: uncovering of these stories? You know, for the most part, um, for the most part, people have been very receptive. For the most part. Um, um, We have placed witness stones all up and down Lime Street. Um, which are ways of telling these stories. I mean, they're invitations to dig deeper, frankly, but um, but they're ways of signifying that there's a story to be told uh, mm-hmm. in front of various houses, in front of our church. Um, and But anyway, all up and down Lime Street, there are about 13 of them. Um, and for the most part, I think people have been very, very receptive. Um, um we were joined in that work by the library in town by the Florence Griswold museum in town and by, um, the school system, which enlisted, um, seventh graders to write poetry, Um, uh, um. about some of the stories that they were, that they were hearing. Um, so again, for the most part, I think people have been, um, fairly receptive. Now, um, there were people, uh, when approached about, uh, putting a stone in their front lawn, uh, saying that on this site, somebody had been enslaved, a person had been enslaved, um, who said, I don't want that in my yard. I'm trying to sell my property right now and uh. that's going to make my property values go down. That actually happened right next door, um, uh. Uh, in the house, uh, to the house that I'm in right now. Um, so, so there has been some resistance in that way. Um, one person, I mean, this is, this is a true story. One person, when I said, um, when I was describing this project, um, to somebody, this is a um, person on the playground at the school. Um, she said, oh my God, are you scared about having that in your lawn? I mean, do, I mean, do you think something's going to happen to your house? I mean, are people going to come and vandalize it? And I'm like, no, no. And who are the people who would come to vandalize it? Well, for her, I think it's, I don't, I imagine, I don't know. I didn't ask her exactly, but um, I imagine it's people who she imagines might come up from New York City or something like that who want to, I don't know um take take back like the property from people in old lime I don't know um well well here's the thing we don't for 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 people
0: of color
2: yeah
0: we don't really need a stone to tell us that there were enslaved people there so we're not gonna all of a sudden start coming to your neighborhood to you know right right I'm very curious I don't really know what my, my sort of response as a person of color, if I walked up to, to your house and I'm coming to visit you and there's this stone there that says people were enslaved, yep. a per, you know, I don't know. I have to tell you, I, I I honestly would have to just kind of sit with that for a minute to go. So what's your purpose in this? That's a first what's your happened? purpose in doing this? So Is it a feel-good thing for your community? This this is just something I'm just sort of bouncing around here
2: Mm -hmm.
0: because I don't know what that would feel like. You know, they're witness stones for you all, but I think it would have to be very clear for a person of color what those stones mean. Right, right. Because if I have to travel down a street and everywhere I'm looking, oh, oh, an enslaved person was here. But I'm sure you all must have some sort of um monument to explain why the exactly. stones are there and what your purpose is. Yes, right,
1: right. right. We do, but um, I wanna I wanna um uh, linger with that with that point because I think it's a really really important point. Um, these things have different meanings to different folks. Um, all symbols are multivalent, right? Uh, but um, in particular, yeah, I think the difference between a white person experiencing those stones. And a person of color experiencing those stones could be profound. Mm-hmm. So for, for people in this community, the idea is to say, you know what? This isn't just a pretty place. You can't mm-hmm. just walk down this street and go, oh, isn't this a lovely historical community? It's a way of saying um, it is a lovely historical community. But you need to ask deeper connection, deeper questions about how it came to be the way it did. Mm-hmm. Um, whose labor made it uh, a lovely historical community? Who built these beautiful homes? Right. Whose hands did this work? Um, so, so I understand. My my hope is that those stones are ways of asking those deeper questions mm-hmm. about um, about the complexities of communities like mm-hmm. this yeah so
0: so tell me reverend doctor then it's about the asking the questions and the uncovering mm. then what do white people do with that yeah. in order to change the world because yeah. it's one thing for me to say oh yeah okay that's 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 good I I know that I know yeah. that this beautiful home I live on yeah. was because of uh land that was robbed from First Nation people or that enslaved people built it. Because we know that we 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 know fundamentally. I'm I'm fairly certain the land that I live on, just because I'm in New England. Mm -hmm. You know, I can just think about all that. So but what do we do with it? What do we do with the information once? Yes. And and I'm saying we, but I really mean what white people Mm -hmm. do for this information.
1: Mm -hmm, mm mm-hmm um that's i mean i think that's the the real um the real point to these things because on one hand yeah um i think i think a lot of people just see it as you know it's just a historical thing and that's fine um but again it's moving from history to responsibility and the understanding that those stories now that we have made local um, have a bearing upon the work that we're trying to do in the present. So let me describe uh-huh. a little bit of that work. Um, so one of the things that we've tried to do is to get our town um to, well, several things. Let me let me let me un- unpack them one by one. It's to get our town to build affordable housing. And I saw the nastiest, um, most knocked down um it's just some of the some of the most um Embarrassing, disgusting behavior that I've ever seen in um, hearings about affordable housing about three years ago. And that was one of the moments that indicated to me um, just how deeply um, um, this racial apartheid is in our community. Mm-hmm. Um, all of the reasons that were given that we should not build this affordable housing complex I mean, they, I heard they tried to throw everything at the wall that would stick, and none of it. Um, None of it was really rational, uh, and the emotions behind it did not match the content of the complaints. Uh-huh. Um, so anyway, it indicated to me that there is a problem there. So affordable housing is one of the major things that we're trying to to do in order to um, help. It's 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 not going to single handedly solve this, but to help address the issue of racial apartheid, or at least uh-huh. to create the opportunity to. Um, begin to address some of that. Mm. Um, because when you have massive homes that, um, you know, are on the market for a million dollars on one or two acre lots. Well, that, that means that a certain kind of people are going to right. be to those homes and right. are going to be your neighbors. Right. Anyway, that's one of the things. And I know that we're right. at, yeah.
0: so we were up. So we do have to take a really quick break and we'll come back and hear uh, one of the other things that you're doing. We'll be right back with our guest today, the Reverend Dr. June Kite. And this is Dismantle Racism. We'll be right back
2: join us every Tuesday at 4pm Eastern for the Mind Behind Leadership, where we focus on what leadership really means to us and to others. We have practical discussions with the CEOs of some of the world's largest companies, owners of small businesses, and experts in psychology and behaviour to get that inside track, what to do, what to avoid, and what really happens. Join me, Graham Dobbin, at the new time, 4pm, every Tuesday for the Mind Behind Leadership, here live on Mm talkradio.nyc
0: We are back with Dismantle Racism and our time always goes so very quickly and there's so much to talk about. But one of the things that I thought about as we were talking about the uncovering of our stories and you were sharing about the affordable housing, that was one of the things that you're trying to do in your community. I think that that's also the the resistance of people to affordable housing and so many other things the the resistance of that and the resistance of learning about our history is because we can continue to lie to ourselves Mm. so we can say i'm not racist if we don't have to deal with anything about our history because we can believe in our minds that i've accomplished Everything I've accomplished because of the work that I've done, nobody else helped me get here. And if those people wanted to come into our community and live, they should make the money that we make and then they could afford to buy the house so they don't have to deal with all the other things that contribute to systemic racism, which is racism that's been built into our country since its foundation, and it's it's a system that's built to keep people of color down. And so, if I don't have to deal with my history, if I could deal with whitewashed history, then I don't have to deal with the morals. I don't have to deal with this whole idea of you're coming into my community. Right. Taking right. what's rightfully mine. Right. right?
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, so tell me, you you were saying, though, in addition to the affordable housing, there were some other things that you're trying to do in your community to not only just uncover the stories, but now we uncover the stories and those stories lead to action.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so let me talk about a f- just a few things. But um, one of the things we're trying to do is to get our um, to get our town to pass a uh, resolution on, res- on racism as a public health crisis, um, with the understanding that a predominantly white community does not exist as an island. It is not an isolated community. We have people coming to work here, uh, coming to worship here, coming to school here, who are. People of color. Um, Furthermore, we send a signal to our neighbors in, you know, New London County and New Haven County that we think we don't have any responsibility. We don't have any uh, we don't have those issues here. Um, And I think we need to, as a as a community, uh, be able to say loudly and publicly, we get it. You know Mm -hmm. what? We get it. These Mm -hmm. issues affect us all. And even in predominantly white communities, especially there, we need to take some ownership and responsibility for the fact um, that racism has deleterious effects Mm -hmm. uh, on, on um, the bodies of those who experience it. So Um, could you give me an example? Because I, I love what
0: you're saying. So for the people who are listening, how would, you know, making your particular community, how would with, with you signing on board that racism is a public health crisis, yep. what would that look like in your community then? Okay, so you say that you, yes, it exists. So give us some examples of what it would look like then once we are aware and that we claim racism, that we own the fact that it's a public health crisis, what would that look like?
1: Would, I think what it would look like would just simply be setting a public tone um, from you know the from the leaders of the town um, saying that um, you know for students in our high schools um, we we see that this is an issue and we see that we in our community in our school system say need to address this it's mm-hmm. saying that we in our worshiping communities need to own this and address this. We in the, um, you know, the museum community, whatever the community might be, we need to address this, own this and make a difference uh, in whatever way we can. Now, is that going to mean that um, we're going to go from being, you know, 98% white to, you know, um, you know, uh, I don't know, 50-50 or something like that, Uh, people of color? Probably not. Um, But I think it sets a powerful tone that this is an issue that we deeply need to need to work on um, so i mean just to give you a really concrete example i can tell you that um, um one of my good friends and yours a person of color um, uh, comes and does some work with us at our church from time to time but he tells me that every time he comes into our town He dresses up, man. He puts on a tie um, because he doesn't know how the people here are going to treat him. He doesn't know how the police here are going to treat him. Um, And it's one thing for um, people in this community to say, oh, it's fine. It's fine. We're fine. It's another thing to say publicly. Maybe it's not fine. And we're going to take ownership and responsibility for the fact that it might not be fine.
0: Right. And And that's a really great example, because what it means is if you can acknowledge that racism is a public health crisis, then you know that when people of color who come to your community to work, that perhaps you can start to look at the ways that you treat them differently. That's right. You know, right. if you're staring at them, if they're coming in to, you know, buy something or or all or the cops yeah. decide that they're going to stop them because they look suspicious. Right. right. Uh, unfortunately, wearing a suit and a tie does not prevent us that from prevent it. receiving it. But but I get but we have to do it. Those are things we have to do. We have to think about as a person of color. I have to think about how do I have to dress when I go there? That's right. right. So it's a public health crisis for sure. But Reverend Doctor, yes. you know, we're quickly running out of time. So do you want to give us one more example then of the things that you're doing in your community? And I'd like to, when you give that one more example, if you have any other uh, parting words that you think would be really relevant for us to know before our time is up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll share two, um, two things. Um, the first is that, um, we just, uh, welcomed some Afghan refugees, uh, into this community. And I'm really, really, um, proud and grateful, um, to be able to do that. Um, um, we've been welcoming refugees ever since the Syrian crisis and, and really long before that. Um, um, I'm just dating it, um, in my own history here. Um, but it's something that this community has done, um, but that's a way of, I think, building the kind of community, building the kind of receptive, welcoming, hospitable uh, place that I, I hope that we can um, come to come to live in here. Um, so anyway, I'm really grateful for all of the ways in which um, people have stepped up to to be that welcoming community here. But the other thing that we did, um, which was really instructive to me in a, in a positive way, um, was during the Trump years when... Um, people were being aggressively threatened with deportation. And that was happening in the Obama years too, but aggressively during the Trump years. um, We were able to provide sanctuary within our church community um, for um, several families who were faced with imminent deportation. And it meant that um, they were not deported. It meant that they were not separated from their families. It meant that they were... um, um, able to stay in this country and fight through the legal system in order to be able to stay here. Now, the reason I say that or talk about that is because I saw that bring out the very best
2: nice. in
1: this community. Um, instead of resistance, instead of um, naysaying, I mean, there were a few people, but what I saw for the most part was people going, you know, Um, That's a project I want to be a part of. That's something I want to support. That's something I want to get behind and um, be a part of. And it helped to build this robust, powerful sense of a community of conscience um, where people were united in the best of all possible ways. I I believe that's the that's the road um, that that allows us to build the kinds of communities that we most wish to see, which is to unite in those sorts of kind, those sorts of uh, um, projects. Anyway.
0: I am so honored to have had you as a guest on this show today. I, I value the work that you're doing and untelling, uh, really untelling, right? Like, Like really untelling uncovering all of the stories in your community, but not for story's sake, but for responsibility's sake. And so I appreciate that you are saying we've got to do something, right? So it begins with the stories, because if we know the stories, then perhaps we're able to see that there's a need in the present for us to make some changes. So I appreciate it that it's not just stories for story's sake. We have run out of time. I want to thank you so much for being on the show. Tell us really quickly how we can get in touch with you. All right.
1: You? <laughs> sure. Um, I'm not on social media. I, I am resistant to Facebook and to, and to, um, uh, Instagram, but I am on email. My email address is stephen at youngkite.net. Um, in, uh, in addition to that, um, You know, I preach a sermon every seven days at the First Congregational Church of Old Lyme. They all go up on the website and our website is fccol.org. So www.fccol.org.
0: Thank you so much, Stephen. And if you could just offer us a blessing to end our show with today, I would so appreciate
1: it. Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. And I'm going to do that um, simply by sharing a very quick scene uh, from Naomi Nye, Naomi Nye is a Palestinian poet living in San Antonio. And she describes a scene in an airport in which there's a lot of stress, a lot of activity going around, and a lot of people at each other's throats. And she describes the way a woman, an older Palestinian woman, breaks open some cookies and begins passing them around. And the ways in which that ordinary act of communion winds up melting the hearts of the people uh, who are stressed and who are at each other's throats at this airport gate. And then she says this to close it. This will be my final blessing. This is the world I wish to live in. Uh-huh. This can still happen. That form of radical community and hospitality can still break in. So that's the blessing that amen, I wish to Amen, this- amen, amen.
0: Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Reverend Dr. Awesome. Steve. Thank you for having and me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to our listening audience. I invite you to please, please stay tuned for the Conscious Consultant Hour with Sam Lebowitz, where he helps you walk through life with the greatest of ease and joy. Be well, be safe, be encouraged. Until next time, I'll see you later. Bye.
1: Have you ever thought of reinventing yourself? Are you looking to create a new life's journey? Hi, I'm Kevin Barbro, host of Coffee Talk XL every Tuesday night, live, 8 p.m. Eastern, on talkradio.nyc. Tune in live to hear me and my guests from a variety of different backgrounds. As a former college coach and a current full-time actor and owner of multiple companies, my show is as eclectic as my life. That's Coffee Talk XL every
2: Tuesday night, 8 p.m. on talkradio.nyc.